0: Well, good morning, everyone. It really is a joy to be with you, an honor to fill this pulpit once again. Uh, Psalm 3 is actually where we're going to be. And if you're taking notes, the title this morning is Safe and Secure in the Savior. Safe and Secure in the Savior. Looking at Psalm 3. Let me read it and then we'll pray. Uh, And this is God's Word. A Psalm of David. When he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me, from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this time this morning. It's always a joy when your people can gather together and open up your Word. And as always, Father, we come confessing our neediness, our dependence upon you. Lord, if we're going to understand what your Word says and its relevance to our lives, if it's going to accomplish in us with power, uh, Lord, just to change us and to Convict us and to bring us to repentance, to help us to think your thoughts, then we need your spirit, Lord. We need his work in our lives and his ministry. And we pray that you would help us to have hearts that are yielded to him. Father, we're so thankful for the revelation of your truth that we might know it and through it, Lord, that we could know you. And so, Father, I pray that you would accomplish much this morning to encourage our hearts to give us a wider view of who you are, Lord, that our worship would deepen and that we would more faithfully walk in your ways and be stamped into the image of your son more and more. God, I'm so thankful for this ministry at Pacific Hope. I'm so grateful, Lord, for the leaders here. and We pray that you would continue to cause this ministry to thrive and grow, that their hearts would be yours, Lord, that this would be a congregation that seeks your face and your glory. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Safe and secure in the Savior, that's the theme of this psalm, and in so many ways also the theme of the 23rd. The idea that we have security uh, in the Lord is a theme that was uh, desperately needed in the days of David's reign. I think about our situations and how much we do to provide security for ourselves. And it's not to say that we shouldn't take precautions. It's not to say that we shouldn't lock our doors at night, you know. But generally speaking, I mean, we think about the, 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 the lengths that we go to to provide security for our families. Uh, some of us move into gated communities with roving, patrolling security guards or you put up, you know, lights around your home or surveillance cameras around your perimeter. Obviously, I, I'd hope you, you lock your door at night. Maybe you'll install an alarm system. Maybe get a guard dog, you know, which is sometimes helpful, unlike useless cats. And, you know, you think about, <laughs> look, I didn't say they weren't cute. They're just worthless. So when you think about, think about the things that we do uh, to protect our homes, to protect our lives, and not even just physically, uh, but in so many other ways, right? The, the saving of money and investing and, and preparing for our futures or, you know, getting a good education and making sure that you have a good job in place or the right relationships or whatever. There are so many things that we do to establish security for ourselves. But the theme here is that ultimately, who is the one who is our security? Who is the one who provides protection for us? Where is it that we can turn to to ensure that we are in the best place we could possibly be, in the best hands we could possibly be. And you know that the answer is the Lord. And if you understand that, then we can close right now. right? If you understand that there's no better place to be than in the hands of God, then we are set for this morning. But there's so much detail here that I think is helpful for us. As we walk through Psalm 3, I really hope it's an encouragement to your soul. If you're taking notes, really, we're going to look at three ways. Three ways to exhibit exemplary faith in God. Three ways to exhibit exemplary faith in God. Because we're looking at the life of David in a time of trouble, significant trouble. And in the midst of his trouble, David doesn't turn to any human solutions, but directs his gaze to God and doesn't allow that to be averted. He trusts in the Lord and in a way demonstrates tremendous faith in God. And in this way serves as as an example to us. So we're going to look at three ways to exhibit exemplary faith in God, and especially in the times of our trouble. Look at it in verses 1 and 2. This is the first way that, that we take our troubles to the Lord. What's the first way that David exhibits exemplary faith in God? He takes his trouble to the Lord. Verses 1 and 2 say, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no deliverance for him in God. David looks at his circumstances and says that his adversaries have increased. Not a big shocker. The Hebrew word is very similar to the English. Uh, the idea here that an adversary is someone who is hostile towards you, uh, someone who uh, it tries to inflict harm upon you. David's point is that they have multiplied. You don't really catch this as much in the English, but in the Hebrew. A repetition of three words: uh, Rabu, Rabim," Rabim." And you can kind of catch it in the language of the song. How my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul. David's emphasis here, God, is that my adversaries have multiplied, have multiplied. Now, I don't want to overstate it. David certainly had allies. He had friends. He had people that were loyal to him. But David's focus here is on a particularly dark time of his life. And thankfully, by the inspiration of the Spirit, we're given the occasion. We're we're given the occasion of what David is talking about here in the introduction to the psalm, where it says a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This is the context that David provides for us, that Absalom, his third son, has risen up against him. And we get the historical context of this coup in 2 Samuel 15, 16, 17, and 18. Okay, I don't know about you, but I'm a history guy. I love history. I was a history major in college, and uh, I just love uh, studying history, and especially the history of the Bible. And I don't know why. You know, I love Tolkien, and I love Lewis, and I love these huge, epic tales. But man, I don't know if you could make a movie better than The Life of David and all the different Twists and turns and unexpected allegiances and betrayals that take place in the life of David. And I would argue that when you get to 2 Samuel 15 to 18 and you read about his son Absalom rising up against him, even with all the troubles that David faced, you know, fleeing for his life from the hand of Saul, this actually may be the darkest time in David's life. This might be the time that he was most discouraged. Because we're not just talking about a king going after his life. We're talking about his son. Let that settle in just for a second. I mean, my son is here, and I love him dearly, and he knows that, right? You know that, right? And, and, and he's going to grow up, and I can't imagine. And I know he would never do this. Ezra, you would never do this. <laughs> but I can't imagine, even in a fit of anger, if my son ever looked at me and said, Dad, I hate you. I can't imagine the heartbreak that I would feel. And even in a moment of passion, in a fit of anger, if he uttered those words, I can't imagine how heartbroken I would be. But to think about a son rising up against his father and usurping his throne and taking over his kingdom and setting himself up as an enemy, you got to believe that David's heart was broken maybe more so than any other time in his life. And in order to get the context, we ought to go back, flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're actually introduced to Absalom in 2 Samuel 3, where it introduces us to David's family. In 2 Samuel 3, it tells us that Absalom is David's third son. His first son was a guy named Amnon. Say Amnon, okay? Amnon was the son of of uh, Ahinoam, who was from Jezreel. Jezreel is a valley up in the north of Israel, uh, west of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, his second son was a guy named Killiam, right? And and he was the son uh, of someone that came from Carmel. Uh, You might be familiar with that account. Remember Abigail, who was the wife of Nabal, the fool, right? That was David's second son. And then you come to his third son, Absalom, who is the son, the, the son through a third wife, Ma'akah. And uh, the, this is significant uh, because Ma'akah was actually from the Transjordan to the east in the land of Geshur. And, and the reason David had these wives in violation of the law of God was because back then kings would enter into alliances with other kings and daughters would be given in, in marriage to kings just as a sign of, of unity uh, and, and political uh, allying. And, and so this is the situation. You've got Amnon, the oldest son. You've got Shiliab, who we don't really care about right now. And, and you, have, you have Absalom. And I just want to introduce this to you because it kind of gives us a look into the kind of guy that Absalom is. Absalom had a sister named Tamar. And again, this is different moms, and so it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's still incestual and it's weird, but Amnon, the oldest brother, had a thing for Tamar. And then in a whole twist of events, Amnon's cousin and friend, tells him you ought to plot a scheme, pretend like you're sick, and you'll be able to take advantage of Tamar, and that's what happens. Well, Tamar is Absalom's sister by the same mom, and Absalom gets upset about what Amnon has done. And for a period of two years, think about two years of just pent-up aggression towards your brother. Two years of bitterness just stewing in your heart. And Absalom finally finds an opportunity to exact revenge on his brother, Amnon. Sets up a party and tells his, his men, when Amnon shows up, I want you to take his life. And they do. And when he does, he flees and goes where? To mom's land, to Gesher. He flees east past the Jordan River and goes to the land of Gesher, where mom is from. And there he stays in hiding for two years. Okay? And then what happens is, eventually, David tells Joab, his military commander, to go and get Absalom back, bring him home. And so he does. But David says, I don't want to see his face. So Absalom comes home and is at home for two years. And David refuses to see him. After that period of time, Absalom goes to Joab, David's military commander, and says, I would like to see my dad. Joab says, no. Well, just kind of ignores him. And so Absalom asks again, I'd like to see my dad. Joab ignores him. And so here's another look into Absalom's life. Well, if Joab's not going to listen to me, let's set his house on fire. That's Absalom, right? So he takes fire and burns all of Joab's fields. Joab comes to Absalom and says, why have you done this to my house? And he said, didn't I tell you I wanted to see my dad? <laughs> right? And so Joab lets him see David. This all sets up the context of what's going on here. 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 3 all the way to 14. Really, this is what's dominating the story here. And brings us to chapter 15. And we're not going to read all of it because it's four chapters of the Bible, but just kind of track with me. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, in verses 1 through 6, This is the account of Absalom at the gate. The people are coming to gain counsel from the king to see David. And instead of going to see David, Absalom stands at the gate. The gate is a significant part of the city where business would take place, judges would rule. Then Absalom seats himself as a judge over the city and takes care of the people and kind of starts sowing seeds of discord and saying, look, David wouldn't see you, but I saw you. And in the first opening verses of chapter 15, it says that Absalom steals the heart of the people so that they have allegiance to him. In verses 7 through 12 then, he, you know, basically springs his plan and tells David, I made a vow to the Lord and I need to go to Hebron. Uh, Did Absalom make a vow to the Lord so that he had to go to Hebron? No, it's just what he told his dad. And he goes to Hebron, he takes his men with him, and then he starts sending messengers throughout the kingdom, saying, look, I'm going to usurp the kingdom, and all his supporters come to follow him. David hears about this. And in chapter 15, verses 13 through 23, David escapes Jerusalem. He does not want to fight his son for a number of reasons. And it makes sense, right? I mean, you certainly don't want civil war. And you don't want war, especially in Jerusalem, You don't want any damage to come to the city or the temple or the palace. And so David leaves 10 of his concubines behind to tend to the the palace and he just starts heading east over the Mount of Olives and is gonna go Transjordan, ironically, towards the area that Absalom's family is from. So David flees east and, and, and just escapes. And so Absalom essentially is able to take over the kingdom without any bloodshed, at least not yet. In chapter 15, verses 24 through 30, the high priest was Zadok. Say Zadok, right? And Zadok was loyal to David and basically assumed, hey, if we're going, then we might as well take the Ark of the Covenant with us. And so he brings the priests and the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, and they're like, where are we going? And David says, I want you to stay back. I want you to stay back because if the Lord wants, if the Lord wants and he'll allow me to come back and see the glory of this city, And will allow me to see the Ark of the Covenant in the temple where it belongs. And honestly, if the Lord is done with me, then what am I going to say? Then he's done with me. So he tells Zadok, stay behind. Stay behind, and, and if God wants me to come back, he'll let me come back. In chapter 15, verses 31 through 37, David finds out that there's a guy named Ahithophel. Say Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's chief counselor. Ahithophel was a wise guy right? And, and it actually says in the text that when Ahithophel gave counsel, it was seriously equal to hearing the word of God. I mean, that's crazy. I think I'm pretty wise, right? But I'd, I fall very much short of what God's word is. And, and Ahithophel, when he spoke, just, just golden wisdom would drip from his tongue. And Ahithophel was David's chief counselor. And instead of going with David, aligned himself with Absalom. David knew that this was going to be a problem. Ahithophel was a wise guy. And so he prays to God, God, I pray that you would cause the counsel of Ahithophel to be foolishness. David says, says to a guy named Hushai. Who's Hushai? Some guy, right? Hushai was another one of David's counselors. He was an archite. Do I know where Archite is? No. But Hushai was from there. And David tells Hushai, I want you to stay back. And maybe God will give you an opportunity when Ahithophel gives counsel to my son Absalom, maybe God will give you an opportunity to thwart that counsel. So that's all what's going on. And as soon as David leaves, we are now introduced to his adversaries in chapter 16. Two guys in particular come to the forefront. There's a guy named Ziba, say Ziba. Ziba was a servant in the house of Saul. And Ziba tells David that Saul's relative, Mephibosheth, remember the guy that was crippled and Jonathan's son and that whole thing? He tells him, Mephibosheth has aligned himself with your son Absalom. Did Mephibosheth do that? No. Mephibosheth has always been loyal to David. But Ziba lies to the king and says that Mephibosheth is now with your son. And David grants Ziba all of Mephibosheth's house. And then you're introduced to a guy named Shimei. Say, Shimei. Shimei was also a servant in the house of Saul. And as David is going over the Mount of Olives along the ridge, Shimei is up there with rocks, hurling them at the king and pronouncing curses against David. The Lord curse you. The Lord curse you for what you have done to my servant, to his servant Saul. One of David's men says, who is this guy? Let me go up on the ridge and I will end this quickly. And David again says... No, let's entrust this to the Lord. Who's to say, maybe God is the one who has sent him to curse me. And if God is the one who has sent him to curse me, then let him curse me. And if God will make things right, then I will trust him. I mean, this is dark. This is dark. Ahithophel gives counsel to Absalom and says, those 10 concubines that your father has left behind, this is what you ought to do. You ought to go into them in a very public way because the people don't know what's going on. For all they know, David might be on vacation and just kind of set Absalom there just to kind of stand in his place until he comes back. So you need to make it clear that your father is odious to you. The Hebrew word is stinky. The people need to know that your relationship is sour. So he sets up a tent on the roof of his palace and one by one systematically goes into David's concubines, disgracing his father, bringing shame upon his father's house. I mean, this is just a rotten guy, surrounded by rotten people. And we won't go into the rest of the history, but David is basically saying to the Lord in Psalm 3, Lord, my adversaries have multiplied. It feels like I'm just surrounded by enemies. It feels like everything is against me. And they are saying with their mouths, even God can't deliver you. I mean, he might have been thinking about Shimei up on the ridge with those rocks, hurling those stones and saying, the Lord judge you, the Lord curse you for what you did to Saul. They're even saying that, God, you can't deliver me. But what the adversaries did not account for was David's trust in the Lord. They sought to discourage him and all it did was drive David more and more into the presence of God. And that is exemplary for me. I mean, think about how encouraging this is, just this account of everything that's happening to David when it seems like everything's falling apart. He loses his kingdom, but more than that, he loses his son. I don't know about you, but there certainly have been times in my life when significant trouble has come in, and I don't know about you, but there's nothing else I can see It's like all around me, all I see are my circumstances. That is all that's in view. It's my entire focus. I mean, even in my dreams. My wife knows this a few years back. And if you know anything about me, my default face is is that I'm just always, I had a friend who saw me at an intersection driving by myself, and he said, Patrick, you were at the steering wheel you know, who smiles when they drive alone? It's just weird, <laughs> right? I'm a glasses all the way full uh, kind of guy, you know, classic extrovert. I love hanging out with people. Just, uh, I'm just dripping with joy. That's just who I am. But I remember going through a particular time in ministry where things were significantly hard with a particular member. I would have nightmares that this person was sitting on my chest strangling me and I would wake up gasping for air. I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I don't know about you, but when I pray, I pray out loud, because if I pray in my head, I get distracted, and I start thinking about football scores and things like that, right? And so when I pray, I pray out loud, and I would go for a walk at like three in the morning, wandering the streets around my house, muttering to myself. I must have looked crazy. I must have looked absolutely crazy. But when I find myself in times of trouble, it seems like there's nothing else that I see, It seems like there's nothing else that's the focus of my heart. I'm so wrapped up in what's going on with me. And that's so much of who we are, isn't it? Woe is me. God, how did I get myself into this mess? And and it isn't that David isn't thinking about his circumstances. He certainly is. But it drives him to the Lord. And this is the point that when you find yourself in life circumstances where it seems like the only place you can turn to is God, I'm not talking about you know, the, the light afflictions that we face from time, I'm not talking about finals week. You know? I'm not talking about you know, the paper cut that you got or my, you know, my Aunt Bessie's toe or anything like that. I'm talking about maybe you got a diagnosis of a terminal illness or one of your loved ones passes away or you lose your job and, and, and you're looking around for months and even years and nothing's coming around and it just seems like there's nowhere else to turn but God. Can I tell you this? That There's no better place for you to be. If when you find yourself in life circumstances and God is the only place that you can go, there is no better place for you to be. There are, there's no better safety, no better security. And David understood this. That is why it's encouraging to me because not only, I mean, this is the king of Israel and everything was not daisies and rainbows and unicorns for him. He didn't just have this chipper giddiness. David, the king of Israel, found himself in dire circumstances where his entire life was falling apart so that when I go through circumstances like that, I can look to God's word and say, God, thank you so much. Thank you that I'm not alone. Thank you more so for his example to me. Because he doesn't wallow in his pity. He doesn't just sit there focused on his circumstances, but he averts his eyes to the Lord and focuses his his attention there. When he's engulfed in his trouble, where we might be tempted to to let that be the only thing that we see, David sees God. God beyond the trouble, greater than the trouble. And that's the encouragement. That as difficult a situation that you ever find yourself in, as hard as your circumstances might be, as impossible as it might seem, it's a small problem to God. He's far, far greater. And that brings us to the second point not just taking your troubles to the Lord, but second, we see David finding his confidence in the Lord. Find your confidence in the Lord. And this we see in verses three through six. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept i awoke for the lord sustains me i will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about david finds his confidence in the lord he doesn't have confidence in himself i mean he had an entire army with him he doesn't find his confidence in his army He doesn't find his confidence in his military commander, Joab. He doesn't find his confidence in the fact that Zadok, the high priest, is his ally. He doesn't find his confidence in any man. He finds his confidence in the Lord. He he says about God that you are a shield about me. And this is how he begins, that God is a defense for the defenseless. God, you are my shield. The Hebrew word is is that small shield that you would take into battle so you could hold a shield with one hand and a sword with the other. It offered very little protection in a way because you were still you know, armed for warfare. It wasn't like the kind of shield that a shield bearer would carry for you, one that would cover your entire body to keep you safe. But David qualifies it. You are this shield, Lord, but you are a shield all about me. whether whether it's in front of me or behind me or to the side, God, you are my protection. You're the one that I can turn to and find security. God told Abraham he was a shield. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Same word. Your reward shall be very great. God was a a shield to Moses, and Moses understood this and confessed it. Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield, same word. The Lord is your shield of help, a sword of your majesty, so your enemies will cringe before you, and you will tread upon their high places. In fact, throughout the Psalms, God is described as a shield 19 times. You have passages like Psalm uh, 28 uh, where it says the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. You have passages like Psalm 115 verses 9, 10, and 11. Three times, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. God is the defense for the defenseless, and David trusts him. But he's more than just a defense for the defenseless. David also confesses, you are my glory. He's not just a defense for the defenseless. He's also glory for the despised. David isn't here trying to usurp God's glory. He's not saying, by saying, you are my glory, look, let me me have some of that, God. No, I think about what Absalom did in that act of treachery in 2 Samuel 16 under the counsel of Hithophel when he goes into David's concubines on the, on the rooftop of the palace and just defames his name it's so degrading to put on such public display that his relationship with his father was completely broken and yet David confesses, God, you're my glory. Even in my times of shame, David trusted that if there's going to be restoration, if there's going to be a restoration of his name and his kingdom and his glory, that could only come through the Lord. You are my glory. It's not just restore the glory of my kingdom or restore the glory of my name. God, you yourself, you are My glory. And you're the lifter of my head. A defense for the defenseless. Glory for the despised. Joy for the comfortless. Joy for the comfortless. David trusted that God would lift his head. This is for the person who's downcast, whose head is brought low. I think about the words of Psalm 27, verse 6, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord because David understood that if there was going to be encouragement, if there was going to be comfort, then it would only come from the Lord. God is his deliverer. God is his deliverer. And so you see him crying out to him, verse four. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. The Hebrew literally reads, with my voice. I was crying aloud to the Lord. This is how far in distress David was. His prayers could not be contained in silence. He had to cry out. And we find ourselves in times like that, don't we? Where we just say, God, God, why is it so hard? Why, do you, why am I in these impossible circumstances? And especially if you're like David. God, here I am trying to be faithful. Here I am trying to do what is right. I mean, when you look at 2 Samuel 15, 16, 17, 18, and I know it's not a huge surprise. This is not some, you know, blow your mind truth. But Absalom never seeks the Lord. You never see Absalom pray. You never really see him seeking the counsel of God. But David prays when he hears about Ahithophel and that Ahithophel has seceded to Absalom, his son, And he prays to God, God, I pray that you would make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. When Zadok, the priest, comes with the Ark of the Covenant, David entrusts his life to the Lord. No, you stay behind, stay in Jerusalem, keep the Ark of the Covenant where it belongs in the temple. But if the Lord would allow it, then I'll come back and I'll see its glory once again. When Shimei is up on the ridge throwing rocks at him and cursing his name, and David's own men are saying, I can end this so quickly, let me just go up and I will put an end to this, and David says, no, if God is the one who has sent him to curse me, then who am I to shut his mouth? I mean, throughout the entire account, David entrusts himself to the Lord. Again, don't overstate it, Right? If you remember the chapter number, 2 Samuel chapter 15, 16, 17, 18 comes on the heels of what? 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, which is David's sin with Bathsheba. David was far from a perfect king and oftentimes trusted in his own strength and not in the Lord. But generally speaking, when you look at David's kingship and you look at his life and his career and, and, and all of that, you see a man after God's own heart who seeks the Lord. David understood. I could cry out to the Lord, and he will hear my voice. He answered me from his holy mountain. David, drawing from his personal experience and recounting the times in his past when God answered him. He has answered me, past tense, and implied he will answer me again. You See, when life gets hard, how tempted are we to take things into our own hands? When something is wrong, that is our knee-jerk reaction. If something is wrong, I fix it. Right? If I slice my finger, I fix it. If I break my bone, I fix it. If I lose my job, I fix it. You know, if I get into a conflict with my spouse or my, my kids. So often, our first thought is, you know what? I'll do better next time. Because when something is wrong, we fix it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing that. But that's just not where David goes first. David first goes to the Lord and trusts in the Lord. We look for human solutions. We look for human counselors. We rely on human help and human strength and human comfort. David went to God, and he trusted in God because of his personal experience. David turned to his Lord and his Savior. He says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. David confesses that God has answered him. I love what Martin Luther says about this. Martin Luther, listen to the words. The life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. The life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. He explains, it's one thing to say Christ is a Savior. It is quite another thing to say he is my Savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first, but only the true Christian can say the second. Is He your Savior? Is He your Lord? Is He your deliverance? Do you know this by experience? I'm talking to the kids. It's not enough. It's not enough, kids, that your parents have faith. It's not enough that they have experienced the goodness of God. It's not enough that they have experienced answers to prayer. It's not enough that they know God's forgiveness do you know God's forgiveness? Is he your God? Is he your savior? I had a professor in seminary who grew up on the mission field. And oftentimes they had nothing in the cupboards. And he would have those crazy stories, right? Where you sit at the dinner table and you pray for the food and there's no food on the table. God, thank you for this food that we're about to eat. And then by the grace of God, right, a neighbor comes to the door with a bag full of groceries and they can eat. I mean, just insane stories. And my professor, when he got married, his dad pulled him aside and he said, you know all the times that the Lord has provided for us. And I just want you to know, if ever you find yourself in a time where you don't have, you're always welcome at our house. Our door will always be open to you. And I remember his testimony to us as students. He said, while I appreciated what my dad was saying, I had committed myself that day never to take him up on the offer. Why? Because if God was good, And God was faithful to provide for my parents, then He certainly would be good and faithful to provide for me. Is He your God? Is He your Savior? Do you know Him? Do you have this relationship? It's not enough to ride the faith of others, it's not enough just to be in a great Christian community. It's not just enough to experience the joy of this fellowship. Is he your God? Do you know his forgiveness? Do you know his love? Are these your testimonies? That God is good to me and I've known it before and so when I find myself in those times of trouble, I can go back to those testimonies and assure myself that he hasn't left me, that he's still with me and he'll never desert me because he's promised. And I mean, David takes this to a degree that just leaves me in awe. Because look what it says in verse five. I lay down and slept. I don't know about you, but if I find myself, I mean, look at verse six. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves round about me. I don't know about you, but if I have 10,000 enemies surrounding me with spears and swords seeking to take my life, I ain't sleeping, (laughs) right? If I know that I've got enemies round about, and David had enemies round about three times, he emphasized, God, they've increased many, many. God, they're all around me, and he goes to sleep. And what a great testimony. Because when he wakes up in the morning, he sees this clearly as evidence. God, you're the one who sustains me. If I wake up in the morning, God, that is your grace to me. If I inhale one more breath, God, that is your grace to me. If I blink my eyes and my eyes open again, that is your grace to me. And that's the confidence that he has in God. And again, it's not wrong to lock your door and it's not wrong to get the guard dog and kick the useless cat out. It's not wrong to do all of those things. But David's security and his safety was his God. And so is God yours. I said we are going to get to the 23rd, so why not? Though so I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which I think is better understood, the valley of deep darkness. We think about the 23rd Psalm, the shepherd's psalm, the shepherd is leading here. He's the one that leads me to green pastures where I have such security that as a sheep, a defenseless sheep, I lie down. As a sheep, if I don't feel completely secure, I am not lying down. I'm going to stay on my feet so that if the enemy comes, if the wolf comes, or the lion comes, I can dart out of there. But the shepherd is with me, and he brings me to these lush pastures so that I can lie down. He brings me besides quiet waters, where there's no risk as I stoop to drink. I'm a sheep. And so, what gives God? as you're leading me along, and now we come to the mouth of a valley of deep darkness. God, I have no idea what's lying around that corner. I have no idea what's hiding in that shadow. Thieves are in this valley, God. Lions are in this valley, God. Predators who are seeking my life, God. This is the valley of deep darkness, and yet I will what? I'll fear no evil. I don't know about, if you know this, but in the Hebrew language, as they write out these things, a lot of times the emphasis is on what is in the middle. And everything kind of works towards the middle. And the center phrase in the 23rd Psalm is, for you are with me. Even when I come to the valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil, God. Why? Because you're with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You're my shepherd. And I will trust you when I come to the green pastures. And I will trust you when I come to the still waters. And even by your leadership, as I'm following along, and you bring me to the mouth of the valley of deep darkness, God, I will still follow you. I don't have to fear any enemy. I don't have to fear any evil. Why? Because you're with me. And you expand this view because Jesus told us that he is the good shepherd. And Jesus certainly understood what the valley of deep darkness was. And when Jesus is our shepherd, we can follow his lead. Why? Because the shepherd knows where he's going. I don't know what lies ahead for me in that valley of deep darkness, but he certainly does. He knows the route. He knows where it's going. He knows what's on the other side. And he knows it by experience. He knows it because he's walked it. And so I can entrust my life to him. And say, God, where you lead, I will follow and I will trust you. Even if it's green pastures or if it's deep darkness. I will follow you. And you're with me. I'm almost done. (laughs) Consider the words of the hymn by Robert Grant. The well-known hymn, O worship the king. All glorious above and gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer and friend. Truly, if God is for us, who could be against us? That's the counsel of David. brings us to the third and final point. Take your troubles to the Lord. Find your confidence in him. And third, address your needs to the Lord. Address your needs to the Lord. Verses seven and eight, David goes to prayer. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. After confessing the Lord's greatness, after confessing his confidence in God, David prays. He prays, arise, O Lord, and save me you don't really see this in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's the same root as in verse two. When his enemies were saying, there is no deliverance for him from God. The word for deliverance there and the word for save here are the same word. They're saying, God can't save you. And David cries out to God, he certainly can. He certainly can. Arise, O Lord, and save me. And I love this because David doesn't just see God as his shield, but he also sees God as his sword. God is not just his defense. God is his offense as well. You're the one who smites my enemies on the cheek. You're the one who shatters their teeth. That imagery is so good. Because Absalom shamed David. And in that culture, it's very similar to us. If I were to walk up to one of you, and I wouldn't, right? But just... I don't know, in an unexpected and shocking way, just came up to you and smacked you in the face, right? I'm doing that, not just to be aggressive, but to degrade you, to insult you. David says, God, they have shamed me, but you shame them. You bring them down because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. You're the one who shatters their teeth. Look, Say what you want about Job's counselors. But Eliphaz is helpful for us in Job 4, verses 10 and 11, when he says, The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. Eliphaz is talking to Job and says, Look, if you have trouble in your life, it's because, man, you're sowing iniquity. I mean, how, how else could all this trouble come into your life? I mean, you must be a wicked man, right? And let me tell you what God does to wicked people. And Eliphaz says, God shatters their teeth. Because when a lion has no teeth, he has to resort to gumming his food, right? Very hard to chew, very hard to fight, very hard to hunt when a lion doesn't have teeth. He's rendered powerless. And that's the idea here. God, not only do you smite them on the cheek, God, you shatter their teeth and render them powerless. And it brings us then to the theme of the psalm, verse 8, that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the confession. This is the third time this word salvation is mentioned in this psalm. And David concludes with this last statement of trust in God. If there's going to be deliverance, Lord, I'm not going to turn to any human solution. When I'm having just the worst time of my life, when I'm in a time of despair, I'm not just going to call my mom. Or all the other refuges that we turn to. Food? I don't know about you when I when I'm troubled, I sleep. You know, just maybe everything will just go away. Here's when I've never understood exercise? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know about you, but if I get mugged in an alley, I wouldn't run because why die tired? <laughs> right? <laughs> just, <laughs> just take me. That's cool. <laughs> we have so many refuges, but David's refuge is the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to him and are saved. And David trusts in God. Salvation belongs to you. If there's going to be salvation, if there's going to be deliverance, God, it comes from you. Is God your salvation? Is God your hope and your deliverance? And here's the thing, because David understands this. The salvation is far greater than just our physical protection. If you want physical protection, then lock your door. If you want physical protection, then install the cameras around your house and put out the lights and get the dog and and so on and so forth. And maybe you extend your life a little bit longer. But the salvation that our God affords us is far greater than that such that if Absalom prevails, and David understood this, take the Ark of the Covenant back, and if God should so will it, I will see its glory again. But if God is done with me, then he's done with me. David understood that. My life might be coming to an end, but my salvation that I have in him is far greater. It extends beyond this life. Into the life that comes. And that is our hope, and that is the salvation that our God offers us in His Son, Jesus Christ. I have no greater security because even if they take my life and take everything away from me, if they strip me bare, if at the end of it I still have Christ, then I've won. That's the hope. That he is my all in all. And that's the point here. Do you trust in Jesus for salvation? Do you know the forgiveness of sins? Have you trusted your life to him? Is he your God? Is he your savior? Because there is hope in no one else and nothing else. But if you would humble yourself and come before him and say, God, be merciful to me. I've sinned against you, and I deserve your judgment. I have nothing to bring. I have nothing. My hands are stained with sin. I have nothing good to offer you. All I have is your promise, God. You've promised that if I trust in your son, I could be forgiven. You've promised that if I trust in your son, I could be adopted. I'm yours forever. You've promised that if I trust in your son, I have an eternal inheritance. I have nothing, God. I come destitute and lowly and broken. I need your salvation. And I am banking everything, God, on the one fact that you are faithful to your word. That's my only hope. And here's the encouragement the Bible tells us, that he is eager to save. That if we would go before him and ask for mercy, he is full of mercy. If we were to go to him and ask for salvation and the forgiveness of sins, he's eager to grant it because that's who he is. Is he your God? Is he your God? Salvation. Because there is hope in none other. And so David prays a blessing upon his people. Why? Because David knows the blessing of God. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made him a promise. Your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and the throne of your the scepter of your throne will be unending. David knew the blessing of God and prays in accordance with that blessing. Again, looking to the faithfulness of God. God, it's not me. I don't deserve any of this. You could be done with me today. But you made a promise, God, and I know who you are. And so I'm looking to you to carry me to the end. Folks, I know it's been a difficult year for you. Impossibly difficult. And we've been praying for you, and we ache with you, and we are privileged to serve alongside you and to encourage you. as much of an encouragement as we want to be to you, I find such greater satisfaction in knowing that you're in the hands of our good God. There's no better place that you can be. I tell my kids this. Look, I know that we love each other and this is great and I want to provide you and protection and provision and all of that, but I'm not always going to be around There's going to be a day when dad goes home. And Lord willing, you're left behind. I have to entrust you to a father that is greater, far greater than I could be. Our perfect heavenly father who could love you far more than I ever could. In our deepest times of trouble, there's no better place to be. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. What a blessing it is to be here at Pacific Hope, to worship together with your saints and to be reminded of the hope that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would be merciful to them. Be merciful to this congregation that mourns the loss of their pastor. Be merciful to Roxy and the family. Lord, be gracious to them. I pray, Father, that you would continue to show them goodness. Thank you so much for Pastor Robert and your provision. Thank you for the leaders here and their wisdom and their love for this people. And God, thank you, Lord, that with, what, with all of our shortcomings and our failures, you can still use us, Lord. I pray that you would use this congregation mightily to reach this community and to shine brightly with the testimony of Christ that many would come in and be encouraged and saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.